0: Book Four, Chapter One of Clara Vaughan, Volume Two This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Clara Vaughan, Volume Two, by r d Blackmore. Book Four, Chapter One. Before that week was over, my uncle could sit up in bed for a short time every day, being duly propped in a downy nest of pillows. One arm, however, remained quite impotent, and part of one side rigid and numb. His recovery was slow and tedious, as might well be expected with one who had been dragged not from the jaws but the very throat of death. For a long time also, his mind was feeble and dim, a mirror overcast by the vapours of the body. To me, who am fond of observing in my own little childish way, it was interesting as well as delightful to note how day by day the mind and body hand in hand rose stronger. More than all was I taught, and humbled in my own conceit, by taking heed How tardily came back the power to guide and control the imagination. The object glass of the mind, not achromatic even in first rate intellects, had long been out of the focal distance from the lens of reason's eye. Upon it had been glancing loose, distorted images, rendered home imperfectly, if at all, to the retina of the brain. Herein its state was the very opposite to that of my own phrenoscope. I have no large imagination, but the images it presents are vivid, and I see well round them. Every one of them is not cast, but cut on my sensorium. Whether I can strike them off in words, whether my telegraph can print its message, is quite another question, and beside its purpose. Having rendered home to me the idols, oftentimes inverted, though distinct, it leaves expression and judgment to do their best with the copyright. Now, both in fabric and in mold, my uncle's mind was different. Naturally, his powers were far superior, but he seemed to take no pride in them. No dark, unsettled purpose had ever thrown its shadow. "'and even its weight upon them. "'Nor had they felt, so far as I knew, "'the rough grasp of adversity. "'Therefore they were longer in recovering from the blow "'than I think my own would have been. "'There were few things, among the many desired by Mrs. Daldy, "'which she failed to reconcile with her strong sense of religion. "'There is not one.' I have heard her say not one of the things we believe to be for our good which we should scruple to lay before the throne of grace even the throbbings of that little unregenerate heart Clara Vaughan's to wit who had kicked her that morning quite by accident of course even they are known and sifted there a slight confusion of metaphor caused by strong conviction of sin. "'Infinite mercy knows the things that be for our edification and confirmation in the faith. "'Yes, backsliding sinner, the want of real, heartfelt, spiritual life can be supplied by prayer alone. "'Is it not so in your experience, Elder?' "'Prayer, my dear madam, and searching of the heart.' "'Oh, the depth of wickedness of the unconverted heart!' And he took another glass of sherry. That night I remember she worked very hard for her, and the next day she presented me with markers the size of a gallows, progged with many holes. On one was done in cross-stitch, "'Pray without ceasing,' and upon the other, "'Wrestle thou in prayer.' "'Jen, thirty-two, twenty-four. "'Both of these I threw into the fire there before her eyes. "'From this it will be clear that in her devotions she still remembered me, "'and doubtless prayed, in good scriptural phraseology, "'for my release from this wicked world. "'Dr. Churchyard's last report had raised her terror to the highest pitch and instead of wrestling in prayer, she had run away in high panic, upon hearing that the fever nurse was seen at large the night before. "'We must use the means of grace,' she said to Mrs. Fletcher, before she locked her in, "'and accept the mercies vouchsafed to us. And it would be sinful, dear Mrs. Fletcher, in me to neglect such a warning as this.' It was wise, as well as righteous in her, to keep aloof for a time, while her devices worked their consummation. For the present, it appeared to me that they were failing signally. My uncle was regaining strength of mind and body, while native air, a sense of triumph, and daily exercise, kept me in blooming health. My patient, who otherwise could hardly bear me to leave him for an hour, insisted upon my taking a long ride every day. Lilla was charmed, and so was I, with the sweet spring air and the rich familiar scenery. And how it did make me eat! Thankful, indeed, I ought to be, and am, that it pleased God to spare me that awful and deadly pestilence. But the worst injury done, by canting hypocrites, is that the repulsion they create drives away others from good. Truly I may say, that for days after being in contact with that slimy sanctity, I could not say my own prayers, as a little child should do. Of that fever, there had been three fatal cases in the village before it entered our house, and I found that it was spreading rapidly. With my uncle's authority, I had the drainage surveyed and amended at once, and so the pest was stayed. Of course, we did not neglect our own weak point, and the crawling, noisome smell was no longer perceived in the room, nor the white vapour on the grass. And so three weeks went by. No news from London or Devonshire no explanation between my uncle and myself, no arrangements as to my expectations in life. As yet, my uncle was too weak to bear any sort of excitement, and seemed desirous only to be passive in my hands. His eyes always followed me to every part of the room, and he would even be propped on the sofa to see me ride down the avenue, and there I always found him, watching for my return. Meanwhile, I yearned to be once more in a certain little room with a north aspect, opposite a cheesemonger's shop in an obscure street of London. Nightly I dreamed of Judici, and daily I dreamed of Isola and Conrad. The dog in the stable-yard, who had hitherto owned no special attractions for me, suddenly found himself petted and coaxed and fed, which he thought much more of, To the scandal of mrs fletcher and the great alarm of the grooms who would rather not have me there moreover the dog himself though i strove to invest him with every chivalrous attribute was of a low and ungenial order adorned with no graces of mind and little taste except for bones and gravy but perhaps my standard was too high peradventure I even commenced with more prejudice than a bulldog's. Be that as it may, and if I can see round things, I ought to see round myself. Every day fell heavier and heavier from the fair balance of time, and every night the stars, for there was now no moon, looked wearier in the heavens, and less inclined for business. How long! How long shall you go round the pole in your steady, pacing way, as if the sky were for auction and you were pacing the lots, while I, with more fire in me than you can strike or steal, am ditched, like a glowworm kicked under a dock-leaf, and see no pole-star at all? Here is May, the height of May. I am full of life and spirit. THE GARB OF DEATH, LIKE AN APRIL CLOUD, BLOWS OVER. LET ME SEE. LAST BIRTHDAY I WAS eighteen. I HAVE KNOWN MORE TROUBLES THAN YEARS, AND ENJOYED NO YOUTH AS YET. LAST YEAR I SPENT IN GROWING, AND PINING, AND STARVING. NOW THE POWER THAT BALANCES EARTH AND HEAVEN HAS FILLED ME WITH JOY AND LIGHT. NEITHER AM I RENEGADE TO MY LIFE, in opening wide my heart to this flood of love and happiness. Still am I set upon one strong purpose. Still am I sworn, and will not repent, that if filial duty demand it, I will trample love under my feet, and cut the throat of happiness. During most of this time, I had no idea where the Queen of Hypocrites was, though doubtless she knew all that was happening to us. "'As soon as he heard of my uncle's surprising rally, "'Dr. Churchyard came over "'and claimed all the merit for his own last prescription. "'Brought face to face with the awkward fact "'that the medicine had not been procured, "'he was not in the least disconcerted, "'but found that we had misunderstood him. "'The prescription to which he referred "'was the one before the last. "'At any rate,' "'he enhanced his own fame immensely, "'and became instrumental under Providence "'in killing more people than ever. "'In reply to Mrs. Fletcher, "'for I would not deign to ask him, "'he stated that the excellent and devoted Mrs. Daldy "'had not been seen lately in Cheltenham. "'Her son, however, was there, "'and foremost in the ranks of pump-room lady-killers.' just what he was fit for. The doctor entertained a belief, and spread the report in Cheltenham, that Dorcas was lodged in a humble cot among the haunts of pestilence, imperiling her life and lavishing her substance to relieve the fever-stricken. This being more than I could stand, I asked the worthy doctor, who after all was a man of the world, what three wealthy persons Dorcas had carried with her. At first he feigned not to understand me, then looked sly and changed the subject cleverly. Of course I referred to the well-known fact that she supported her grandeur and her son's extravagance by playing an admirable rubber. She was playing a better one now. Dr. Churchyard finished by writing another prescription, which after his departure I handed to the husband of Venus, legitimate disposer of mineral medicines. End of chapter 1